This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Intelligence Squared for a series we call Agree to Disagree. I'm John Donvan, and Agree to Disagree is where we bring together two guests, two opinions, one topic, and the hope of a deeper and more nuanced understanding of the issue we're discussing. And today that issue is meritocracy, whether meritocracy works, why it is an ideal, what it's supposed to lead to, what it does lead to. We're examining this question as it's clear that there is a lot of discontent over issues like who wins the most prizes in American life and over whether the playing field truly is level uh, while there are concerns over inequality and persistent impacts of racism and arguments over how to correct and address those inequities, it has been practically axiomatic in our lifetime, certainly in my lifetime, to assert that meritocracy is how society should set its priorities. But is it possible that meritocracy in practice and even in its basic concept is part of the problem rather than part of the solution? Arguing yes to that question is going to be Daniel Markovitz, professor of law at Yale Law School and author of The Meritocracy Trap, How America's Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class, and Devours the Elite. Arguing no will be Adrian Woldrich, political editor and columnist for The Economist and author of The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. Dan and Adrian, thanks so much for joining us at Intelligence Squared. Thank you, John, and real pleasure to be on with you, Adrian. And, and you, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me, John. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you both. And I, I want to start with giving you each a little bit of time to take on the question. You know, think of it as an opening argument, although after that we'll just be having a conversation. But Dan, to the question of whether meritocracy is part of the problem rather than part of the solution, I've said your position is basically yes. Uh, so take it from there. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I do think meritocracy is part of the problem and, and maybe even the biggest part of the problem. But I should begin by saying that it obviously has some attractive features. Meritocracy basically is the idea that advantage should be allocated based on accomplishment rather than based on, say, breeding or race or gender or your parents' last name or social class. And that's obviously a very appealing idea, particularly when contrasted to these other forms of caste order, which are properly despised uh, in the world today. But I do think meritocracy is the problem, and not just contingently, but in a deeper way. And I think there are three principal reasons why that's so. The first is that there are three inputs to accomplishment, to how much a person can do, how valuable their labor is. The first is their talent, the second is their effort, and the third is their training, the amount that's invested in educating them. And one thing that happens in a meritocracy is that elites who themselves have done well begin to invest disproportionate, extravagant, and for everybody else, unattainable sums in educating their children. So in the United States today, the 20 most elite private schools in the country spend over $75,000 per pupil per year educating the children who go there, as compared to a national public school average of maybe twelve dollars to $15,000 a year. And that difference, which is devoted in a very systematic way to squeezing as much education into rich children as possible, produces enormous differences in accomplishment. So the gap between the average SAT score in America of a kid whose parents make over $200,000 a year and a middle-class kid is 250 points, which is twice as big as the gap between a middle-class kid's average SAT score and the average SAT score of a kid at or below the poverty line, which makes it not surprising that America's elite universities all, or on average, have more students from the top 1% than from the bottom half of the distribution. So the first objection I have to meritocracy is that because achievement and accomplishment depend not just on you, but on what's invested in you, meritocracy becomes a way in which rich people 
can out-invest everybody else and becomes a block to a quality of opportunity. The second objection is that all this investment isn't even good for the rich. The rich under a meritocracy are very, very rich. The top 1% of Americans capture today about twice as big a share of national income as they did 50 years ago. But they're rich based on their own labor, principally, and they have to devote their labor with great intensity and enormous hours to whatever tasks the market will pay for, which means that they do things that they're not particularly interested in simply because they need to do those things to make the money that they need in order to pass their privilege on to their children. So in a meritocracy, your training more nearly enslaves you than frees you. You become alienated from your own work. You become under constant competitive pressure. And you have to do whatever it is the market tells you to do, even if you're on top. So the second problem with meritocracy, which is not as important as the first, but is also not trivial, is that even the rich don't flourish. The third problem is the, is the deepest, um, but I'll just say something brief about it here, which is that meritocracy focuses on competition to assess who has the most merit. And competition distorts what people value in a way that makes their activities less worthwhile. Uh, I encourage people who are listening to go to Google and look up side-by-side -side images of the winning women's gymnastics vault in the 1956 and 2000 Olympics. In 1956, a woman runs up to the vault, does a flip off the vault, and lands. In 2000, the winner has done more flips before hitting the pummel house than the winner in 1956 did all told, and then does more flips and spins as she comes off the horse. The 2000 image is the meritocratic image. The woman is frankly amazing. But it's not clear that gymnastics in 2000 was a better human activity than in 1956. In 1956, spectators could imagine themselves in the Olympics. There was a continuum between an ordinary athlete and an Olympic athlete. In 2000, we're all just watching somebody who is so different from us that they're like an alien. In 2000, to win at the Olympics, athletes have to drive themselves so hard that they break their bodies and are stuck in an obsession of performance, which harms their personalities and leaves them exhausted. So that's an image for what meritocracy does. It focuses on competitive edge over what's worth doing and distorts all our ambitions and all our values in ways that harms us all. And those are the three reasons why I'm a skeptic of meritocracy. Thanks very much, Dan Markowitz. And uh, Adrian Woldridge, why don't you, you take a crack at the same question, whether meritocracy is part of the solution or part of the problem? Well, the term meritocracy was invented in 1958 by a brilliant British sociologist called Michael Young, who wrote the book called The Rise of the Meritocracy. And it's extraordinary given how central the question of meritocracy is to our contemporary debates about the world, that it's such a recent coinage. Michael Young defined meritocracy as IQ plus effort. IQ plus effort equals merit. I would say, uh, I would redefine it as IQ plus effort minus bias equals merit. I think a meritocracy is a society based on the principle of open competition. Every serious um, educational opportunity, every serious um, occupational uh, opportunity as well has to be, has to be open to, to free and fair competition. And meritocracy is also a system based on something like equality of opportunity and not on perfect equality of opportunity, but a sense that everybody has a chance to get uh, an education and to equip themselves with the tools that they need to succeed in a knowledge-based society. I would say that uh, the arguments in favor of meritocracy are partly ones of justice. I think it's a just social system because it allows everybody to reach their full potential. But it's also an argument of efficiency. Meritocracies are more productive than non-meritocratic systems. They um, uh, if, if you compare you know, family firms with publicly traded firms, if you compare open and meritocratic societies such as Sweden with um, societies based on clientage or nepotism such as uh, Greece or Italy at their worst, they're much more productive societies. And because they're more productive, they can produce more of the social surplus that we need to fund good things like the arts or welfare states. Um, 
I think Daniel made some very good points, which I would certainly agree with about uh, ways in which we are, in which America is an unjust society and in which the, um, the elite hoard an enormous number of resources. But I would regard that as a problem of not, of not enough meritocracy rather than too much meritocracy. And indeed, I'd point to the Ivy League schools, um, which hoard a great deal, a great many resources as, as institutions which still have a lot of the pre-meritocratic world about them with athletic scholarships and particularly legacy, legacy scholarships for the children of people who are lucky enough to go to those, to those schools. Um, so again, you know, in, I, I say the answer to this is more meritocracy, not less meritocracy. Indeed, the great question which um, critics of meritocracy need to face is what is the alternative? If not meritocracy, what? Do we want to go back to a society in which certain people were privileged because of the group to which they were born? Do we want to have a more equal society like Cuba or Venezuela? Or do we want to have a society in which certain jobs are reserved for certain groups of people because of past injustices? Um, I'm not sure about any of those. Uh, I think in practice, uh, many people who are critics of meritocracy actually just fudge and say, well, they don't want to get rid of meritocracy entirely. What they want to do is soften it a bit to, 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 to have it, um, have meritocracy, have the benefits of meritocracy without the hard work, without the obsession or with getting ahead. You know, a more civilized meritocracy, I'd say, is what they want. But the problem is, I think, once you start um, making exceptions, once you start softening your criteria, once you start saying we'll make an exception here, an exception there to the meritocratic principles, you rapidly slip into the pre-meritocratic uh, world of exceptions for this or that group and indeed class privilege. As for Daniel's point about the gymnastics, I want to watch the best gymnasts in the world. Um, I don't want to watch, you know, second order gymnasts. I think the fact that we put the pursuit of excellence at the heart of society is a good thing, not a bad thing. What's wrong with the best? You've been listening to Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared US is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Our mission is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to join the debate and hear from both sides of every issue. More debate when we return. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared US. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's get back to our conversation. Before we move on, I just want to look at the world that we're living in now and ask each of you, in the United Kingdom and the United States, two nations which uh, certainly have embraced the notion of meritocracy, are these two nations functioning as meritocracies now? Are we in a meritocracy? Dan, can you take that first? Well, we're certainly not in a perfect meritocracy. Um, some of the things that Adrian points out, for example, about legacy admissions at Ivy League universities, um, there's a lot of structural racism, and structural sexism, which are obviously all non-meritocratic notions. But um, we are in more of a meritocracy than we have been in at probably any prior time in our history. If you look, for example, at the correlation between somebody's educational accomplishments and their job title, that's higher than it's ever been. If you look at the economic returns to training, they're higher than they've ever been. So we're in more of a meritocracy than we've been in the past, although it's imperfect. And the important question for us to face is how much of the injustice that we still see is a consequence of the remaining imperfections in our meritocracy? 
and how much of it is a consequence of the fact that meritocracy itself pushes these injustices forward. Maybe I can give one quick example that I think illustrates how I think about this. If you look at the white-black income and wealth gaps, um, those today are as high or higher than they were in 1970, at the middle of the distribution. But if you look to the richest tenth of white American men and black American men, those wealth gaps are smaller than they were in 1970. And my view is that meritocracy accounts for both of those phenomena. It explains why there is now a black elite, because overt categorical racism kept the most productive and talented African-Americans out of high-paying positions until quite recently. But it also explains why in the middle of the distribution, the white-black income gap is growing, because meritocracy produces more inequality. And when there is more inequality and there is racism, then those at the bottom of racial subordination will suffer the worst inequalities. And so here you can see both how meritocracy is genuinely an emancipatory regime and how it's the thing that promotes and perpetuates injustice. I'd have Adrian, a the, different... The question, the, the, yeah. Can I just do the same question first sure. about whether we are in a meritocracy, whether you would sure. recognize our societies as functioning meritocracies? I think if you go back 100 years uh, and compare the America of 100 years ago or the Britain of 100 years ago with today, the answer is certainly, yes, we are in a meritocracy. We've moved massively uh, in the direction of a meritocracy because ascriptive um, restrictions on social mobility based on gender or, or, or race have been eroded or to some, or, or, or indeed, uh, removed. Um, we have a legal meritocracy in many ways. I'd say the answer in practice, though, um, is, is, is more complicated than that. I would say if you go back to the period, to the decades after the Second World War, um, I would say that um, in both Britain and the United States, in some ways, you have more of a meritocracy, not when it comes to gender, not when it comes to race, most certainly, certainly in the most obviously in the United States. But when it comes to class, you saw an enormous um, increase in social mobility, mobility from the bottom of society to the middle of society um, after the Second World War with the creation of a mass welfare state, a mass education system, a mass higher education system. So we, we, we've seen um, in more recent decades um, restrictions on mobility based on gender and race mm -hmm. very rapidly being removed, but we've seen mm. um, restrictions on mobility based on class and hidden class advantages and disadvantage, I would say, increase. And let me just throw one more thing into the mix um, just to be a little bit provocative here to my audience in the United States. I think historically... Um, the United States um, has been more of a meritocracy than Britain, with mm. the obvious and complicated exception of, of, of African-Americans. Um, but I think that's beginning to change at the moment. I would say that Britain is pulling ahead in the meritocratic uh, race, most specifically at the top of society, that Oxford is doing a much better job than Oxford and Cambridge are doing much better jobs than the American Ivy League universities of opening up opportunities. So the number of people who go to private schools getting into Oxford and Cambridge yeah. is going down. State schools is going up. They're, they're creating sort of foundation years, which are designed to get um, people from underprivileged backgrounds into the universities and up the stream. And also we've been creating elite, selective um, state schools called academies um, in working class areas, heavily minority areas, which are incredibly good at providing uh, good academic opportunities. Let, let, I want to jump in to say that it's interesting to me that both of you would answer the question, yes, uh, we're living in meritocracies. Both of you are unhappy with the state of these meritocratic societies, but for quite different reasons. Dan, you wanted to go back and respond to some of the points that Adrian made in his opening. Well, I think actually the exchange we've just had picks up one of the points of potential disagreement between us, which maybe is worth unpacking a little bit, mm -hmm. which is what's the relationship between meritocracy and equality of opportunity? Um, here's what I think separates us. And Adrian, I wonder how you respond both to the question and to my characterization of the question. <laughs> we both agree that equality of opportunity is not just a good idea, but required by justice. The thing we disagree about is whether meritocracy promotes equality of opportunity 
or is an obstacle to equality of opportunity. And I think the reason why we disagree is that, in my view, meritocracy naturally creates enormous inequalities of outcomes. And that has to do with the way in which meritocracy spreads out the income distribution. And then I also think that inequalities of outcome, when they get big enough, make equality of opportunity impossible. So the mechanism that I have in mind is that meritocracy makes the highest earners earn much, much more than everybody else. And then those highest earners funnel their earnings into their children in a way that nobody can match, not even an active welfare state, which then blocks equality of opportunity. And, and I think that you have a, a, a less, less, I don't know, pessimistic view. Well, Dan, Dan let me ask you, do you, do, you, do you think that that is an inevitable process, that it, that is almost an inevitable outcome? So I think it is almost inevitable, absent interventions into family life that violate other principles of justice. That is to say, if the state were prepared to outlaw private schools or to rip children out of their birth families and collectivize their training, then it could stop this dynastic transmission of privilege through meritocracy. But so long as the state is unwilling to do those things, then there's very little it can do. And here's the key mechanism. The problem under meritocracy is not the gap between the education that middle-class kids get and that poor kids get. The problem is the gap between the education that rich kids get and that middle-class kids get. In the United States, that difference, the rich middle-class difference, is 10 or 15 times bigger than the middle-class poor difference. And the state isn't rich enough to give everybody a rich kid's education. So what has to happen is that the rich kids have to be forced to get less intensive educations than their parents want to buy for them. And the only way to do that is to intrude in families in ways which other principles of justice reject. Well, um, I think Daniel is absolutely right that the fundamental challenge facing meritocracy is the challenge of the transmission of privileges to, from one generation to another. And if indeed you look at the foundational text of the meritocratic idea, which is Plato's Republic, this is precisely the issue which he highlights and wrestles with. Now, Plato produces ex very extreme solutions to the problem, which is the collectivization of child rearing uh, and the abolition of private property. Um, and he says that what you must have is state-sponsored orgies, which make sure that, that fathers don't know who their children are and that children can be raised uh, collectively in, in his imagination. Obviously, uh, a very uh, extraordinary solution, but pinpointing the right sort of things. But I don't believe that it's impossible to step in and compensate for um, the problem of opportunity hoarding without interfering with other principles of justice. I think there is the issue of regression to the mean, which means that very privileged, educationally privileged parents will systematically not have children who are necessarily as privileged as they are. There will be a regression in each generation. There will be people coming from um, privileged families who aren't so, children coming from privileged families who aren't so bright, and a very large number of children from unprivileged, under, unprivileged families who will be very bright. The question is to match opportunity with ability. I think you can do that through testing, which relies on, on looking for promise rather than or, or, or tests of achievement, IQ tests and other sort of tests. I think you can do it by sending very able children from less privileged backgrounds to academically enriched schools very early, early on in their life. lives. As I, I mentioned before, I think Britain is doing a very good job of that. Singapore also does a very good job of that. And you can use the state to step in and deal with some of the, 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 the problems of dynastic privilege. I would say, for example, the prob problem of the rich get, getting ever richer and passing on those riches to their children can be dealt with through uh, so taxation. You, taxation so it, so, it, so it, you, you do not – I feel that Dan is saying that, that meritocracy almost holds within its own mechanism, its own destruction exactly. of its own values. Exactly. And you disagree with that completely. I, I disagree with that. And I think that um, not only do I disagree theoretically, but I also disagree in the sense that if you look at history, if you look at various attempts to, to advance meritocracy, it has proved to be a sort of self-correcting mechanism. If you look at the late 19th century in the United States, when you had 
uh, a, pluralist, uh, a plutocratic elite beginning to consolidate. You had a meritocratic revolution against that plutocratic elite, which created more upward mobility. We can do it again. You can do it again if you have the right social policies to compensate for privilege. We've been somewhat walking around Uh, we've touched on it a few times, the issue of um, access to elite education, which I think is part of this conversation. It's clear that uh, elite education is seen to to be a major way to climb up the ladder. And it's also a gateway through which choices have to be made about who gets in and who does not. And it's therefore very, very contentious. I want to play uh, a little bit of an interview with a student from Detroit who uh, back in 2014 was protesting the fact that the state of Michigan had voted uh, to outlaw, basically ban affirmative action in the state schools. This is a march for asserting the equality and the right of the black and Latino and other minority communities to have an equal opportunity to um, and access to higher education in this state and any other state in the country. So, so this student talking about equal opportunity and access to higher education in the state d- does does meritocracy not in its very definition suggest equal access? Well, I want to separate out questions of affirmative action and race in the United States um, from meritocracy. Uh, Just to say something very brief about affirmative action. My view on affirmative action is that meritocracy requires affirmative action, partly for reasons that I suspect Adrian agrees with, which is that in the presence of massive racist inequalities, any level of performance of an African-American child is going to indicate brighter prospects than the same level of performance in a child who's had the benefit of white privilege. And so a meritocracy will evaluate people differently. I also think that affirmative action is required just by a commitment to racial justice for non-meritocratic reasons. Um, But let's set that question just to the side for the moment. Um, in, In response to the question that you've asked, I do think there's a real problem here because, remember, meritocracy allocates advantage, including elite school places, based on accomplishment. And accomplishment turns a lot on what's happened in your prior life. And so when we allocate school places based on accomplishment, we'll pick people who've accomplished the most, and those will be disproportionately rich kids. Let me just give one statistic that illustrates this. I went back to the College Board's data a couple of years ago and looked at a recent year's comprehensive SAT data and asked how many kids from various different backgrounds had SAT verbal scores that hit the Ivy League median. And if you looked at kids, one of whose parents had been to graduate school, there were about 15,000 kids in America, one of whose parents had been to graduate school, whose SAT verbal score hit the Ivy League median. If you looked at kids, neither of whose parents had graduated high school, in the whole country, there were fewer than 100 whose SAT verbal scores hit the Ivy League median. So if we try to give people university places based on their accomplishments, say on the SAT, we're going to give the children of very educated people access to the most elite schools. And that strikes me as being unjust. Um, On the subject of um, the um, admission to elite schools, um, I'd like to make two points. One is that in many ways it's too late when we're starting talking about university entrance. we need to have uh, an educational system that builds from the bottom up. And the foundations of a lot of uh, subsequent inequality are laid much, much earlier on than in universities. They're laid, you know, to some extent in the womb, but certainly in the early years and the pre-kindergarten years. So as much as we can, we need to encourage um, we need to focus redistribution, redistribution of, op- of opportunities on the youngest uh, amongst us. And secondly, I think there's a, uh, there's a dangerous fixation on just this funnel of university education, this funnel into the elite. What a system of meritocracy, in my mind, means is not just that we're um, recruiting the best people into the elite, but we're finding a system of allocation which makes sure that people throughout society have jobs which are suited to their abilities and aptitudes. And indeed, particularly in Britain and the United States, I think we need to think much more about vocational education, apprenticeships, education for the caring professions, making sure that instead of having a system of uh, differentiation by elimination, we have a system of, of, of differentiation by sort of allocation to different streams and different sorts of educational opportunities. 
Can, can I speak to just that point? Please do. Um, I agree entirely with that. Um, the way in which I think about it is that we should have a system of allocation in which we decide collectively and therefore inevitably based on politics on what tasks are worth doing. And then we educate people so that they can do worthwhile tasks well. And then we give access to jobs and advantage to people who are able to do things that are worth doing well enough to make them worth doing so that we have people who are excellent at teaching be teachers, people who are excellent at carpentry be carpenters, people who are excellent at finance be bankers. And we don't privilege one of these tracks over others so that it's not the case that bankers make 100 times as much as carpenters as they do in our society now. And I guess the question I have for you, Adrian, is that strikes me as being allocation based on excellence. It's not aristocracy. It's not a racial or gender caste system. So it shares with meritocracy those features. But it's also not one in which there is a single master competition for who gets ahead. And I'm inclined to think that meritocracy focuses on the single master competition side of things. And therefore, the system that you've described, which, which you like and which I embrace wholeheartedly, is not a meritocratic system. Well, we're disagreeing about the meaning of words here. I think it's... Um uh, we're disagreeing about the meaning of the key word in this debate. But I think that if you look back over the history of meritocracy, there are two rival traditions uh, at work. One, which I might call the, the sort of Anglo-Saxon tradition, is a matter of hauling up people from throughout society to get into elite institutions. Um, and that, I think, has become even more dominant at the moment, particularly in the United States, which has which has seen this sort of the Ivy League universities be, becoming the focus of this extraordinarily ferocious competition. The second um, tradition of meritocracy might be called the German tradition, which is much more about allocating people to different sorts of things. Germany has a, a flourishing academic sector and a flourishing gymnasium, high school sector, but it also has a flourishing vocational. Uh, educational system. I think we should be moving to the second of those choices and perhaps even to a third choice, which adds the caring professions, um, which are going to become massively much more important in our societies as our societies age to this, 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 this mixture. So certainly just one notion of merit um, over fixated on academic excellence is, is something we need to be moving away from. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's return to our discussion. Adrian, in your opening statement, you made uh, a comment about efficiency, that uh, meritocracy delivers a sort of efficiency to society and to the marketplace. And I, I, it, it tweaked in my memory, having read something that I believe Dan said in an interview with Vox a while back, uh, when he was asked where did meritocracy begin, and he dated it to 1833 when the British East India Company uh, began to move to competitive exams to recruit its staff uh, it's senior staff that prior to that, you just had to belong to the right class and have the right family connections that now the idea was, no, we want to do the job. Well, we're going to hire the best people by giving them a test. And that was plausibly a beginning of, uh, meritocracy. But I, I wanted you to develop a little bit more. I think the argument that you were making that meritocracy will result in the best people getting to do the best, the best jobs. And that means at the top, by which at the top, I mean the people who are who will be government leaders, heads of corporations, et cetera, that it's a way to to match up the best talent with the places where that talent is needed. Sure. If you, um, meritocratic institutions are more efficient, they make a better use of their resources, they contribute to productivity more than non-meritocratic institutions. If you compare publicly owned companies with family companies, publicly owned companies are on average. Uh, significantly more productive. If you compare 
um, let's say, societies which have uh, a broad uh, commitment to lack of corruption, open competition, uh, and the other things that go along with uh, meritocracy. Let's call, let's say, Sweden, uh, Denmark uh, as prime examples of that, but also Great Britain and the United States and Germany. They are more efficient than societies that are plagued by um, nepotism and clientelism and other such things. And I think that that efficiency advantage of open competition and meritocracy is actually growing. So if you look at Italy uh, since the Second World War, Italy enjoyed a long period of rapid growth, just as France and Germany did. But that rapid growth begins to peter out in the 1990s as the information technology uh, economy takes off. And Italy then becomes stagnant. And one of the reasons of this is it's got such a large number of nepotistic family-owned firms that, 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 that can't grasp, uh, that don't have the mechanisms to uh, exploit IT-delivered growth. Or more broadly, if you compare a country such as um, Singapore with many other um, once-emerging countries. Uh, Singapore, you know, Singapore was roughly at the same level of income per head as Sri Lanka in 1960. I think Sri Lanka was slightly ahead of that. Then um, Lee Kuan Yew made this massive bet on meritocracy, open competition, brain power, the most educated people uh, you could possibly imagine going to the best universities in the world and then coming back into the business uh, and, 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 and administrative elites of, of Singapore. And you had a massive explosion of, 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 of wealth, the growth in living standards and also the creation of an extremely all-encompassing welfare state. So this issue of productivity is absolutely vital. And once you have, as, as Singapore demonstrates, once you have a productive society, you can afford the other things that we so much value, such as culture and, in, and, and, and a welfare state. So, so I think there's part of this that I agree with, and then there's part that I would characterize differently and probably in a way that disagrees with what Adrian has just said. The, the part that I agree with is that a meritocratic way of promoting people versus a nepotistic way or a way based on gender or race bigotry. Obviously, the meritocratic way will promote better people. And so there is a, an efficiency advantage in meritocracy over nepotism and caste and racism. Um, that's true. But there's a second effect of meritocracy, which is that the meritocratic elite over time comes to remake the labor market and the whole economy in its own image to fetishize the particular narrow skills that it has. And that effect, that is to say, the effect of distorting work and production in ways that favor meritocratic skills but don't favor the common good, means that meritocracy tends to depress growth and to be inefficient. And the question is, which of those two effects is bigger? My view is that at this moment in our societies, and by our societies, I mean, largely speaking, the wealthy nations of the world, the second effect is bigger than the first effect. And so, you know, I think one of the reasons that Sweden is doing so well in a variety of ways, or the Scandinavian countries, or even Germany, is that they have gotten to the point at which they've broken nepotistic and caste-based corrupt ways of advancing people. But they have not embraced the form of extreme meritocracy that the U.S. and the U.K. have embraced, in which everybody is competing with everybody for a small number of jobs in a pyramid where there's only one point at the top. And instead, they've got a form of production, which in fact allocates jobs to people who are able to do the jobs well without a single hierarchy of jobs, and that that's the key to their success. And that, as I understand it, is not meritocratic. Although, again, it's also not nepotistic. Adrian, I want to take you to a point again that came at the very opening of Dan's argument in which he talked about how um, talent, innate ability is not evenly distributed. That, that in fact, there's a genetic lottery as um, Warren Buffett has discussed. Um, and when, when the argument is made that people who win in a meritocracy are those who deserve to win, morally, that becomes a little bit of a complicated question to say they deserve to win and yet they did nothing but be born with the genetic inheritance that they had. So, so take on that question that, you know, life isn't fair and therefore meritocracy 
is not going to be fair because not everybody is going to be born at the same with this at the same starting point. I, I know that you make the, the issue that effort is a big part of this as well. But what about just the, the basic fact that not everybody's going to be born with the same sort of brain power? Sure. I think it's um, very intriguing um, that the, the modern left has two very different objections to meritocracy. One is that all skills and abilities are socially constructed. So if they're unevenly distributed, it must be the result of an uneven distribution of opportunities and and advantages in society. That's the sort of the the extreme sort of egalitarian uh, blank slate left. But the other argument, which is most eloquently expressed in John Rawls, is that meritocracy can't really be fair because precisely because people inherit def- different abilities because of genetics. And therefore, they have no moral claim to the outcome of their their genetic advantages. It's just if you're born clever, that's that's lucky. It's not it's 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 not anything that deserves to be rewarded. Um, So two very different narratives competing here amongst the the critics of of meritocracy, both of which I think are are actually wrong. The first is wrong because I think there is indeed a significant genetic component in. Ability, but the second is wrong because it's not just a matter of uh, genetics, uh, not just a matter of ability. Effort is indeed an important component. Could could not the ability to to demonstrate effort, to exert effort itself, be a genetic inheritance? It could be. I mean, again, I, that that is an argument that Rawls makes. But if you go down that road, you end up in a world where everything is 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 is, is purely determined. I think it, I find it very hard to imagine a society in which we all assume that everything is just predetermined, your effort is predetermined. I know that if I'm going to be a successful person in, in, in life, I have to struggle with my, with, with my baser instincts. And I think, I find it hard to imagine a society, A, in which that isn't true, that isn't true, and B, in which there isn't a certain, uh, in which there must, there must be an element of truth in that, that we do have, you know, free choice and we do have a choice to turn ourselves into meritocrats or to, 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 to put our feet up and do nothing all day. On the nature-nurture question, um, I am very much on the nurture side for a thousand reasons. But I also think it's one of these interminable debates that has the property that people are very hard to shift off of their priors. And I suspect I'm equally hard to shift off of my priors. So I don't know that there's much that I should say in the pursuit of enlightenment on that question. Um, but I do think there's something else that's going on that that the exchange with Adrian didn't yet fully capture, which is this. Um, talents are socially constructed in another way also. Um, you know, Odysseus was skilled at all ways of contending, but most of us are skilled at only some ways of contending. And which ways are valuable depends on how society is structured. So the people who get advanced degrees from my university or from Oxford or Cambridge have a particular set of raw capacities, which in a society like ours, highly financialized, highly technocratic, and full of a lot of inequality, make their labor extremely valuable. But their labor would not have been valuable in a society of hunter-gatherers. And it would not have been valuable in a pre-industrial agrarian society or indeed in the industrial society of the 1950s and 60s. The thing that makes their labor so valuable is the inequality in which their skills have been built. And so there's kind of a circularity in the suggestion that they have meaningful talents. And the question that we need to ask as a collective is, do we want to arrange our affairs to make people who have these very peculiar sets of raw capacities count as super talented? Or do we want to arrange our affairs, invest in technologies, invest in kinds of regulation, invest in forms of social organization that don't favor those particular skills, but favor other skills with the consequence that we'll have a more equal society? And I'm in favor of the second approach. I, I want to talk a little bit a little bit of a softer focus uh, in terms of just being able to be clear, specific, and know exactly 100% what we're talking about. But I'm very interested in getting into the psychology 
uh, of our society in a world where people who are winners are being told that they deserve to win. And the corollary, if you are a loser, and I hate using that word, but you know what I mean in this context, if you're not one of the winners, that you deserve to be in that position, that that's, that, that is implied by the value system of meritocracy. And I, I just want to ask you, Dan, what do you think is the impact, in a sense, on the soul of society for people who are doing well to believe that they deserved it and people who are not doing well to to be also to internalize the idea that they deserve it? Yeah, so I think it has two effects. The first is that the elite becomes less aware of its social obligations than it would otherwise be because we have an elite that can tell itself in some sense correctly, I've worked incredibly hard to get where I am. And this has not simply been handed to me. I've been struggling all along. And so I don't owe things to others because what I've got came from my own effort. Of course, it can both be true that what you've got requires enormous effort. You went to school, you worked, you studied all the time. And you owe a lot to others, namely to the fact that you had enormous amounts invested in your education that other people didn't have, that our social structure is set up, that your jobs are really great and other people's jobs are terrible. So the first thing that this does is it makes the elite less aware and less inclined to accept the imperatives of redistribution than it should be. The second thing it does is it tells the people who are excluded by meritocracy that their exclusion which is in fact the result of structural inequality, the result of the fact that their parents weren't rich enough to buy $75,000 a year educations for them, that this exclusion is actually their own fault. That if they had been more talented or harder working or in some other way more virtuous, they would have been able to measure up. And so it adds a kind of a moral insult to the economic injury of exclusion and the results of that moral insult show themselves in two different ways. They show themselves when people turn the insult in on themselves so that the rise of addiction, of suicide, of diabetes, of depression, of alcoholism in middle class people in both the UK and the US, I think is directly related to the moral insult that meritocracy turns on them. And then also people lash out against others whom they seek to blame. So populism, nativism, the rise of, of right-wing and racist movements is another way in which people respond to this insult by trying to find someone to blame who is not them. And so that's a second way in which the sort of moral life of meritocracy distorts the imaginations and beliefs of the people who live under it. Well, that is really bleak. And Adrian, you get the last word to respond to that. Well, I started off by talking about Michael Young's uh, great book, The Rise of the Meritocracy. And of course, the rise of the meritocracy was not a celebration of the meritocracy. It was a criticism of the meritocracy. It was a very bleak uh, criticism of the meritocracy, which made exactly the points that Daniel has just been making, that meritocracy makes the, the successful intolerably smug, because unlike the old aristocracy, they think everything is due to their own merits rather than to the accident of inheritance. And it makes the position of the, uh, of, of the losers in society um, intolerably um, miserable. Um, because essentially they have no, nobody to blame but themselves. So Michael Young's great argument is meritocracy is just. And because it's just, it's horrible. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it's a terrible way of, uh, uh, of organizing society. And his solution was to have a much more egalitarian society. Um, I think those are very fundamental points, but they can be dealt with. Um, I think that we need to um, make sure that the education of the successful um, is one which puts a heavy uh, emphasis on social obligations, that people should be told um, in no uncertain terms that they're, that they're not there just because they're working hard, but they're there also because they have uh, their winners in the genetic lottery. And they should also be told that to, to those who much is given, much uh, from them much is expected. And indeed, this is exactly what happened in the late 19th century when we had the first of the great meritocratic revolutions. Um, let's say in Great Britain, when we saw the creation of uh, a meritocratic elite that succeeded in getting into public schools on the basis of examination 
examinations, Oxbridge College on the basis of examinations, and indeed into the civil service on the basis of examinations. That elite was told over and over again by means of uh, studying the classics, particularly Plato's Republic, and by means of studying the Bible, that they owed a duty to society for their um, for, for their privileges that they had to give back, and indeed that was a you know at least in Britain a very abstemious elite that didn't pay itself a huge amount of money that saw itself in terms of uh, of duty and obligation. And at the same time, I think we need to make sure that we replace a system of selection by elimination which is increasingly what we have at the moment, with selection by allocation. So we don't just have one hierarchy of merits, one set of things that are valued, but that we value uh, vocational skills, we value caring skills. We, you know, we have um, plenty of ways of rewarding people for different sorts of merit. And above all, we have to, you know, realize, of course, that success in, 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 in life, in, in jobs, is as nothing compared with, you know, success in your, or, or success in your, if that's the right word for it, in, in, in your family and in your private life and in your philanthropic endeavors. If we had more time, I think I would hear the two of you beginning to agree more and more on, on your ideal vision for what should be. Uh, but we don't have that time. And I want to thank you both for, uh, for joining in this conversation and for shedding light and making it interesting and for the, the respect you showed for one another's arguments. And again, I think the reason we call this Agree to Disagree uh, as, a, as an episode is that um, you do agree on a lot. So uh, Dan Markowitz and Adrian Woldrich, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me and pleasure to speak with you again, Adrian. Thank you very much. A most enlightening conversation, at least for me. Thank you. And thank you everyone for joining us. I'm John Donvan. This has been Agree to Disagree, a production of Intelligence Squared. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.